You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The U.S. Justice Department takes down 27 domains being used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Booz Allen offers its take on the 2021 threatscape. Russia declares itself innocent of bad behavior in cyberspace, but many remain skeptical. Johannes Ulrich from SANS looks at supply chain risks and managed service providers. Our own Rick Howard speaks with Wired's Andy Greenberg about the recent sandworm indictments. Silk Road's mission billion dollars appear to have been found, and the U.S. government is working on a forfeiture action. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, November 6, 2020. The U.S. Department of Justice this week announced that it had taken down 27 domains Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps had used to distribute propaganda and disinformation. Many of the domains represented themselves as belonging to legitimate news outlets, but all were determined to be run by the IRGC and to be illegally seeking to exert a covert influence on public opinion in the U.S. and elsewhere. The warrant cites violations of the International Emergency and Economic Powers Act and the Iranian Transactions and Sanctions Regulations. The Justice Department's announcement also notes that the IRGC's provisions of material support to Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Taliban earned it a place on the Treasury Department's list of specially designated nationals. That, too, exposes the group to U.S. legal action. John C. Demers, Assistant Attorney General for National Security, explained the rationale for the takedown as follows, quote, As long as Iran's leaders are trying to destabilize the world through the state sponsorship of terrorism and the taking of hostages, we will continue to enforce U.S. sanctions and take other legal steps to counter them. Booz Allen Hamilton has published its expectations for the cyber threat landscape in the coming year, they arrange their predictions on a novelistic armature. The efforts of a fictional CEO, Dakota Alexander, of a fictional Fortune 500 company, 
to deal with a major cyber incident. The report opens much the way the Cyberspace Solarium Commission introduced its report with a fictional account of a Washington hellscape created by a massive attack on the Internet of Things. The resemblance is not accidental. Both intros are by Peter Singer, political scientist turned novelist. Booz Allen sees eight main trends in cyber threats. We might group them into three categories, the success-inspired, the pandemic-driven, and the technologically-enabled. The success-inspired trend will be marked by increased attention to and experimentation with various extortion and ransomware criminal business models. There are three pandemic-driven trends Booz Allen sees shaping the threat. First, both criminals and nation-states will devote more attention to attacking the delivery and shipping sectors. The increased importance of these businesses makes them high-value targets. Second, COVID-19 tracing apps and their supporting ecosystem present a new attack surface for criminals, spies, and even low-life trolls. Third, healthcare's shift to a remote delivery model is likely to be an enduring one, and criminals can be expected to go after telehealth systems and remote healthcare monitoring devices will become more attractive targets. And finally, technological advance in cloud migration, artificial intelligence, and 5G networks will also shape the way threat actors develop and service their targets. The first trend is the likelihood that cloud-based development environments will become a vector for supply chain attacks. Second, as artificial intelligence becomes more pervasive across industries, machine learning systems and methods will become high-payoff targets. Third, 5G networks will complicate the attack surface industrial control systems present and give attackers a fresh advantage over defenders. Finally, the general public availability of 5G will enable attackers to find and exploit vulnerabilities in their victims' mobile devices. Each threat trend is accompanied by a set of recommendations for managing the risk the trend presents. The report closes with three general recommendations. Don't become distracted, be proactive to be resilient, and have an incident response retainer in place. TASS is authorized to declare that, quote, Russia keeps facing claims of its destructive behavior in cyberspace, which are groundless, end quote. And they have that straight from President Vladimir Putin. He's particularly miffed at reports of attempts to meddle with foreign elections. The rhetorical technique employed here is unlikely insistence, quote, There are continuing claims against us on our alleged hyperactivity in information space, meddling in elections and so on, which are absolutely unfounded, Mr. Putin said and he repeated his calls for more cooperation with the U.S. on approving a comprehensive program for practical measures for resetting relations with Russia in using IT technologies. He also called for a full-scale bilateral regular interdepartmental dialogue on key issues of maintaining international security at a high level. Russia has indeed been quieter during recent elections in various countries than it was a few years ago, but quieter doesn't mean totally silent. Consider Reuters' recent fancy bear sighting and its account of GRU activities against some U.S. Democratic Party email accounts. And in any case, the bear's lower profile is at least as likely attributable to their adversaries' deterrence by denial as it is to any putative Russian self-restraint. Some of the targets, Reuters says, include the Democrat-aligned Center for American Progress as well as the Indiana and California Democratic Parties, there's no particular evidence of notable success in these campaigns, but then not all pawing gets the honey. 
The Silk Road online contraband criminal market was taken down seven years ago. Its proprietor, Ross Ulbricht, now serving time in a U.S. federal prison. But the Silk Road legal story has continued. This week, the U.S. Justice Department filed a judicial forfeiture action seeking control over more than a billion dollars in Bitcoin squirreled away in a crypto wallet associated with Silk Road. Someone, a hacker known only as Individual X, succeeded in exfiltrating a lot of altcoin from Silk Road wallets, and as the price of Bitcoin rose, so did Individual X's account. The Internal Revenue Service noticed Treasury took the Bitcoin, and now Justice is filing for forfeiture to bring some closure to the affair. So it appears, as Wired observes, that Justice may finally have an answer to its billion-dollar question, where did all the money go? If anyone needs a refresher on Silk Road and its celebrity impresarios, the online site Free Ross Ulbricht describes Mr. Ulbricht as an entrepreneur passionate about free markets and privacy, which is one way of looking at it. His hacker name, we recall, was the Dread Pirate Roberts, an homage to the Princess Bride. The U.S. Justice Department's view of Mr. Ulbricht's career may be viewed at justice.gov, and it's decidedly less rosy than the free-marketing privacy hawk Free Ross describes. Silk Road trafficked a lot of drugs and made a great deal of money from it. And finally, our long period of uncertainty over leadership, over succession, and over the orderly transfer of authority seems finally to have reached a satisfying denouement. Major League Baseball has approved John Angelos as the successor to his father, Peter, as control person of the Baltimore Orioles. That is, the executive responsible for the club as a whole. So take heart, Baltimore, and talk birdie to me. It's November, so let the hot stove leagues begin. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
Following the recent U.S. indictments of several Russian nationals associated with the Sandworm Adversary Group, our own chief analyst Rick Howard reached out to Wired writer and author of the book Sandworm, Andy Greenberg, for his take on these developments. Andy Greenberg is a senior writer for Wired, responsible for security, privacy, and information freedom, and author of the most excellent book, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War, and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you, Rick. I'm glad to be here. Now, we asked you to join us today because just this past Monday, 19 October 2020, the United States Department of Justice unsealed charges, including computer fraud and conspiracy, against six of the hackers who allegedly are part of the hacker crew behind the cyber operations you so clearly articulated in your book. And we thought you might have some insight about what all this means. So uh, thank you for doing that, kind of giving us a guidebook for uh, how to understand all this stuff. Yeah, w- reading this indictment, to me, it's like very gratifying. In a way, it's a kind of closure on years of tracking this group that, you know, it, it, it's, at times it felt like I was in a pretty small club of security researchers who even believed that this was one group that was carrying out all of these attacks. And now seeing, you know, six names and six faces being held accountable for this, it's like a nice coda to the story. All right. So let's talk about that. Can you, uh, maybe not everybody has read your book yet. And uh, by the way, I highly recommend that they do, but can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what the book was about? And then we can talk about what the indictments mean. Sandworm is a group of Russian hackers that since late 2015 or so have carried out what I think is, you know, you could say is the first full-blown cyber war. Um, Starting in Ukraine, they attacked pretty much every part of Ukrainian society with these data-destructive attacks that hit media and the private sector and government agencies, and then ultimately um, the electric utilities causing the first ever blackouts triggered by cyber attacks. Sandworm hit Ukraine's power grid not once but twice, in late 2015, and then again in late 2016. And then uh, finally, this Ukrainian cyber war that Sandworm was waging, essentially, in the middle of 2017, kind of exploded out to the rest of the world with this cyber attack called NotPetya, a piece of malware that, um, a worm, a self-propagating piece of fake ransomware that was actually just a destructive attack that spread from Ukraine to the rest of the world and took down a whole bunch of multinational companies medical record systems and hospitals across the United States, and ultimately cost $10 billion in global damages, the worst cyber attack in history by a good measure. So the story of Sandworm is, is kind of a detective story about the security researchers and, you know, across the private sector. I, I focus on a few different people who were kind of trying to track this group and figure out who they are and try to warn the world that this Ukrainian cyber war was soon going to spill out and hit us too. And then that is exactly what happened. And and when that happens, the, the book kind of switches from a detective story to a disaster story. And I track the effects of NotPetya across the world as it kind of causes this wave of devastation. So why the indictments now? I can't say that I, I have a definitive answer. I mean, I've, I've asked Justice Department officials if this is about the election and they say no, that you know, this is just how long it takes to really get the evidence of who was at the keyboard doing what and you know, have the basis for uh, an indictment that will hold up in court, although it will probably never really go to trial. These 
these guys will never actually see the inside of a courtroom. Um, but, you know, it's hard to imagine that there's not some sense of the election in the calculus here, because we know that the GRU, another part of the GRU, at least APT 28's Fancy Bear, Microsoft has already warned that they were targeting hundreds of organizations over the last year, um, trying to breach them, and that many of them were political consultancies and political campaigns associated with the election, and that they were probably trying to do a kind of hack and leak operation as they did in 2016. So it seems to me like, I mean, maybe it wasn't even intended to, but I kind of guessed that it was, that this indictment sends a message to the GRU that cut it out. Like if you were going to do something in for the, this election, just remember, we are going to catch you. <laughs> We're going to hold you responsible, just as we did for these older attacks. I know there's all that calculus, and it's easy for armchair cyber warriors like you and me to you know, take pot shots at it. But um, is there anything you could say about that? Is there, uh, you could see reasons why governments would be reluctant to call out the Russians on this? Well, I think you're right. Like it's, um, <laughs> I am an armchair cyber <laughs> warrior at best, and um, and you know, I I know that this stuff is is hard, and I really, you know, the as I was saying, like the, the criminal indictment is a remarkable document, and I'm amazed at the amount of work that clearly went into it. But I I do think that like we have to hold our public officials accountable, um, and we have to hold them accountable to holding Russia accountable. It doesn't seem that hard to me to put together the forensic evidence that I could see that these attacks were carried out by Russia and make a public statement about that. I often use this Lord of the Rings analogy. Like, this ring is so powerful that like everybody wants it for themselves and nobody wants to do the hard work of you know carrying it to Mount Doom and, and destroying it. Oh man, that is the best analogy I have ever heard. We've definitely seen... Uh, the escalation of this idea of continuous uh, low-level cyber conflict, okay, in the early part of the decade, you know, was minor annoyances, but the NotPetya and everything else after seems to be more significant. Uh, so, Andy Greenberg, thank you for being on the show. Uh, we Everybody go read his book. It's fantastic. Thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you, Rick. This was a fun conversation. Our own Rick Howard speaking with Sandworm author Andy Greenberg. You can hear more of this interview on our website. It's part of CyberWire Pro. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Uh, Johannes, it's great to have you back. Um, 
You and your team have been looking at supply chain risks, uh, specifically when it comes to managed service providers. What sort of information do you have for us today? Yeah, this was really prompted by an event recently where one large uh, managed service provider, uh, Tyler Technology, was breached. And we had some of uh, their customers contact us because they found remote access tools installed on some of their systems. And of Mm. course, the big question then was, are these tools that Tyler Technologies legitimately installed or due to the breach, uh, passwords and so forth leaked? Is this something uh, that an attacker installed after breaching Tyler Technologies and uh, retrieving these passwords from them? So how do you explore something like this? What path did you all go down? Yeah, so uh, of course, first you look at what tool is being used. And now uh, the tool that was installed here, that remote access tool, was by all means a commercial legitimate tool. And then, of course, it gets even more tricky. Now, this is something that a managed service provider would would certainly install on your systems because they do need that kind of access uh, to your system. They need to be able to remote install, remote monitor, and uh, do all of these things uh, to it. So what it really comes down to is what I was calling is now who's watching the watchers here. Mm. Uh, you have these companies uh, that are managing your networks. Often they also provide security functions uh, for your network. There are various levels of service uh, that you can purchase. But uh, you need some kind of controls around how they're doing that, what they're doing. Uh, so you should have some communication channel set up there, they will tell you uh, these are the kind of remote access tools we are going to install on your systems. In particular, if you're still retaining some security monitoring function, uh, you need to know that in order to understand that uh, this new communication you see in and out of your network is legitimate. That's due to this particular tool that uh, the vendor installed. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it seems like really it's not unreasonable to expect a high level of communication with these folks, especially if they're going to have intimate access to your network. Yeah, exactly. And that's really important that you also monitor and based on this. Uh, You can sort of totally relinquish control of your network. Uh, You need to still retain sort of some kind of monitoring, uh, some kind of access uh, where you, like I said, watch the watchers, you're checking up on them. And this is not necessarily an adversarial uh, thing that you're doing. It's not that you don't trust them. It's just that you need to know who else is in your network but that managed service provider. Uh, Because an attacker managing your network, as we sometimes even Mm. call it, uh, is uh, probably acting very similar as this managed uh, service provider. And you need to be able to tell the two apart. Well, in this particular case, how did things play out? What did you discover in the end? In the end, uh, we discovered here that this was a legitimate install, apparently, but uh, this is actually still uh, somewhat uh, in progress. I don't think we have a complete conclusion yet, in part because everything is still a little bit in flux here with this breach as well. Mm, All right. Well, word to the wise for sure. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It's the breakfast of champions. 
Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't miss this weekend's Research Saturday episode and my conversation with Craig Williams from Cisco Talos. We're going to be discussing Poet Rat, malware targeting the public and private sector in Azerbaijan. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Next week.